we're wrapping up this, this whole series on spiritual warfare, and I, I've got to tell you, I don't think there's been a topic I've covered in the last number of years where I have so many people talk to me about it and um, talk about how it's in very practical ways helping you in your life, and that's always the goal. The goal is to help you in every way we can um, to, to walk with the Lord. And this topic is incredibly appropriate, this idea of spiritual warfare. And I know we've handled it a little bit different than maybe you've heard it preached before because I really do believe the context of what uh, um, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians is just saying this, the enemy is going to constantly attack you, but I've given you what you need to stand strong. And he doesn't take it to some crazy, uh, charismaniac extreme where you go chasing after demons, not at all. He just says, I can give you what you need to stand strong. If you face those things, God will give you the strength to overcome them and to cast them out and to, and to move past them. But that um, he's given us all we need to just stand firm. And we need, to, we need to get this message. Because like never before in my life, the reality of the spiritual battle that, that humanity finds itself in is evident. You know, I don't even do this very much anymore, but because it's so disheartening, and you might be in the same boat, but I think I have to do it, if I turn on the evening news or I look at the news feeds on, a, on the Internet, um, it's amazing what we see. And I don't know. I, I was talking to somebody recently, and they made a comment about they're talking about business. He's a business owner, and he was talking about young people. And you know, they don't, there seem like young people don't want to work. And, and he said this. He goes, and I'm assuming every generation has always said that about the generation following him. I said, I think they have. I think every generation has said that. And so maybe what I'm going to say right now is, is just everybody said this, but I just don't think so. What I want to say is it just seems to me in America right now, and globally also, um, that every time I look at the news, all I see is chaos. You know, there's, there's murder in the streets everywhere you go and, and assaults in the neighborhoods and, you know, just in the Milwaukee area in the last couple of weeks, videos of, you know, of students beating teachers up at school. I'm telling you, that wouldn't have happened when I was in school. Somebody tried to beat a teacher up in school. First of all, other kids would have beat the kid up. Then the teachers. Um, I was, some of you know where Webster School is? Webster Middle School? I went to Webster Middle School. They have the crazy pod system still. It was a failed attempt. They put you all in one big room, four classes in one room. It was awesome for throwing things at each other. It was chaotic. I was there the first year they did it. But off of each little pod, they had a, a little room. And I had one teacher, that little room was used for, I'll use the term, plumbing young men up. He took you and threw you up against the wall in there and slapped your, bounced you off the walls and told you you're going to go shut up. I was a recipient of that a time or two. <laughs> shut up, Larson, and sit in your chair and do what you got to do. And no one questioned it. I'm not advocating teachers beating students. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it just seems, it just seems like it's really, it's just exponentially increased where students can beat up a teacher in his class and no one even does anything about it. Where parents go to a park in Milwaukee with knives to defend their daughter in a fight and they end up stabbing other parents. That just happened, what, two weeks ago. It's just, it's, it's just, it's bizarre. Um, and it just seems clear to me that there's this incredible, very real, if we could have stuck our head in the sand before, and said, hey, we live in this safe little bubble, leave it to beaver America, and everything's good. Um, you can't have your head in that bubble in that sand anymore because it's not real. It's just very apparent that there is a battle raging for the soul of our nation 
And I'll take it down a step. There's a battle raging for the soul of your families and the soul of the church. I can't even tell you the details, but I got a phone call this week from a fellow, somebody's got a pastor friend of mine, saying, uh, Mark, I just got off the phone with, with two guys. One is Richard Hammer, the legal counsel for the whole Assemblies of God, and another guy who is the guy you talk to if you're going to get sued. And he goes, this is what's going on in my church. And it's a whole big transgender issue and all this crazy stuff going on. He goes, what kind of bathrooms do you have? I said, hey, people can laugh at me and I can make all the jokes in the world, but we built a bathroom that's a family bathroom and we did a renovation and there's no gender anything above it. I said, why? He goes, man, we're, we're, we might be getting sued. Stuff's going on. In Wisconsin. It's crazy for the very soul of the church, whether or not they can keep having church. Because they're doing what has always been done in every church in the history of the world and saying, no, this is wrong. You can't do that. You know, and there's the threats of lawsuits and legal action and all this stuff. So it just is really apparent to me that there is a battle going on for the very soul of our nation, the soul of our families, and the soul of our church. And this is the battle that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in these final verses of Ephesians that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. And he tells us the devil schemes to destroy the good and beautiful life that God intends for his children, that he lies to us about what is right and wrong, he slanders others to us and even us to ourselves in order to cause internal division and division between each other, all in an attempt to destroy what God loves, which is his beautiful bride. The devil wants to destroy the bride. And the Bible tells us we are the bride of Christ, the church. So he wants to destroy this. He wants to destroy everything else in the, in the process. And if you stopped right there, you would say, but you know, you know what? It's terrible. It's rotten. I'm never going to watch the news again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go live out in the woods. You know, the, the video announcements. I'm not sure where they shot them, but there was a little tiny shack on the side of a pond. I don't even know where that was. Somewhere. It's in Marshfield, okay, where, they said, where his family lives. And he goes, I'm going to go live in that shack by the pond and never, and I'm going to no TV, no connection, no nothing. Let me tell you something, it wouldn't solve anything. The devil can tempt you and affect you just as much at the pond by the, in, in Marshfield as he can on our beautiful Lake Michigan as he can in the middle of the central city. The Apostle Paul stands in the midst of all the chaos, because they had chaos then, so I'm saying it seems crazy now. That's why I said I'm not so sure I'm right, because Paul would have probably stood and, stood and said, it's crazy in Ephesus. It was the headquarter of the goddess Diana. They worshipped these, these gods that they, were, they, that, that they put all their energy into. They spent all their money on worshipping these, these idols. And it affected everything. Matter of fact, when Christians got saved, they killed the Christians because they affected the, the um, industry of making idols. So it's always been crazy. And Paul stands in the middle of all the chaos and all the division, and he reminds us of something in these last verses. He reminds us that God is in control. But that more so for us personally in this situation, he offers a reminder that God offers us all that we need to rise above any of the devil's schemes, that you and I as children of God, that we can stand firm in the midst of a world that seems to be going mad. Paul begins to name the weapons that God offers to us so that we can resist and overcome when the devil turns his attention towards each of us, at least it feels like all of a sudden it's the, 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 the battle's intensified towards us. He begins to tell us all the things we have, how we can use these weapons to win. 
And what we've been finding as we've been looking at these weapons is that these weapons are primarily, they're not really weapons, you can't hold them in your hand. They're primarily values and they're attitudes and they're truths that we build our lives upon. They are the ways we can live and respond so the devil's assaults, which will come against us and never will stop, that those assaults are rendered um, impotent in our lives. Like Paul said it in the very last verse that we looked at last time, he says, these weapons that we have will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. His assault will prove to be powerless. So today we come to another one of those weapons that he's, been, that he's made available to us so that we can, we can learn to use it so that we can stand strong in a world that seems to be going mad. So grab your Bibles. They ought to turn just by themselves to Ephesians chapter 6 right now. We've been there for a few weeks. Ephesians chapter 6, and let's read a couple of verses, verses 16 and 17, and we're going to just focus on just the first part of 16 this week. He says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That first part of verse 17 there, take up the helmet of salvation. And that's what we want to talk about today. What in the world is Paul saying? He's trying to say the world's gone mad. The devil's fighting against you. That's why the world's gone mad. But you don't need to sweat it because God's given you all you need to stand firm in the midst of a world gone mad. And now he says, in addition to all these things we've been looking at for these weeks, and take this helmet of salvation. Now before we look at this in its particulars, let's um, hear what he says about this weapon that is the same that he said about the one we looked at last time we were together. He says it a little different. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. And before he said, take up the other weapon. Take up or pick up the helmet of salvation. In other words, this is why it's so important to understand that it's something that we must choose to use. It's not automatic. And this is really important here because I think it helps us understand what the Apostle Paul is not saying here. Because if I was to do a survey and without going through the maybe the whole explanation of Ephesians and I just said, took this verse out of context and I said, the Bible says for spiritual warfare, take up the helmet of salvation. And I said, write down what that means. I think most everybody would say, well, that means get saved. You need to be, you need to be in the right relationship with Jesus. You need to have salvation. And that would kind of make sense. But um, in the context, we see that's not what it's, it can't mean that. Because the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to people who are already Christians. He's not saying here, you need to get saved and then all your troubles will go away. Anybody get saved and all your troubles went away? If you hear somebody preach it like that, you just get up and walk out and then tell the people they told to, they're lying to you. The whole health wellness gospel that really thrived in the 80s, 70s and 80s and into the 90s and still exists in some places, um, is a lie. You don't just get saved and everything gets better. You know, um, just come to Jesus, you know, and, and take salvation and the devil will leave you alone. Well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem the way the Bible describes it and it's not the way life uh, proves it to be true. No, salvation, it's not what he's talking about here, salvation 
in the text that we could use, just say get saved. Salvation isn't something that we can take up one day and leave alone the next. When someone comes to Jesus, they, what, what's that mean? They repent of their sins. I mean, they turn away. They change mind and direction. They repent of their life of sinfulness, turn away from that, turn to Jesus as forgiver and friend and Lord, and you really do that. That's a done deal. Someone doesn't need to come back and get saved all over again every single week like Suzanne thought she had to do when she was a little girl going to church. That every week she came back. No, you don't have to do that. When you come to Christ, you've come to Christ. You're a child of God. And the reason this is so important in light of, of spiritual warfare, why I'm kind of talking about it right now, because I could have just made a comment about it, the reason this is so important in light of spiritual warfare is because often when we are in the middle of a battle when we may even feel like we're going to give up and we're going to lose in the battle, that's when the enemy comes and whispers the lies into your soul. Remember, that's how he functions, through slander and lying. And he's going to say things like, you know, God's not even listening to you. He doesn't care about you. You're not his kid. This is this Christian nonsense, this church stuff is a big waste of time. Just close the book on that nonsense, go back to the way you were living, and move on. Now, maybe that's not the exact way that you're going to hear it in your heart, but it's something like that. It's lies that can cause you to even question your salvation. Listen to me, church. If you have come to Jesus, if you know He is God's Son sent into this world to give His life for the sins of mankind, and that has that He has risen from the grave and He is now alive and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and He is right now, according to Scripture, praying for you and for me, if you have given your life to be a follower of the Jesus of the Bible, then you are a follower of the Jesus of the Bible. He is, you are His son, you are His daughter. It's a done deal. Don't believe the lie of the devil that God has turned his back on you or forgotten about you because things are bad. If we were in Houston right now, there were some of us would need to know this because you'd be saying, I've lost everything. God's not even there. I don't even believe in him anymore. Every time I walk through chaos with people, the same thing comes out of you to say this. Same couple things I'm going under. I'm mad at God. And I always go, I don't understand how you're mad at God. He's not the cause of this. Or there's not a God anyways. I go, well, you thought, you, you, understood, you understood and knew him yesterday. How do you think he's gone today? Here's the reality. The devil in this battle against us whispers into our ears at our lowest times. And the one of the ways he's going to try to fight against you is say, this stuff isn't even real anyways. Friends, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, then you are. Don't believe the lie of the devil that God has turned his back on you or has forgotten you. Salvation isn't something you pick up one day and put down another. Salvation is secure. So if Paul says then, take the helmet of salvation as spiritual warfare, and he's not here referring to the need to come to Jesus as Savior because the people he was writing to are already Christians, then what is he saying we should take up if he's not saying just get saved? Well, I believe what he's doing is he is encouraging us to recall and stand upon the results or realities of our salvation. That we know what is true about us now that we are saved and stand upon that when the enemy is hurling lies at you, especially at your lowest time. 
Now, there are countless results of salvation that we can stand upon and we need to stand upon. But in light of what I know about my own life and the assaults the enemy has thrown at me, and what I've heard from others over the years that I've talked to people as they've gone through various um, valleys and trials in their life, I think there are three things that we should look at today that are results of your salvation that you need to be able to, to put on in the midst of a battle to say, no, this is the truth. This will make you stand strong no matter what the enemy is doing around you. And they're this, that in Christ, we'll talk about there's three things that are really important. You are forgiven, you are valuable, and you are hopeful. You are forgiven, you are valuable, and you are hopeful. And they all have very specific um, power to help you stand strong in times of assault against the devil. So let's look at those. In Christ, the first one, in Christ... You are forgiven. I think for many of us, and I, I'm hoping what we're going to talk about right now really helps you as we get into it. I think for many, many of us, uh, the devil attack goes something like this. We all live in a very real world. We pretend we don't when we come to church, by the way. Stop that. Stop it. Stop being fake. We live in a real world with real problems. It's okay to talk about it. You should. We're all here for each other to help each other. So we live in a, in a very real world where we face very real temptations and sometimes we fail and we face temptations before and we still face temptations today and distractions and all kinds of problems and we have all failed. All. Guilty. Me. And you. We have all failed and guess what? We will all still fail in certain things. And we hear the good news of the gospel as people who have failed. And the good news is basically God forgives sinners. And we love that message and we embrace that message when we come to Jesus for salvation. But then sometime in some dark and quiet and lonely time of life, the enemy whispers. He says, sure, God forgives. He forgives, of course, he forgives in general. But you know, Mark, that one thing, that one thing's just too big. That one thing's just too bad. It's the thing that we come back to in our minds over and over and over again. Maybe it's the thing you've never told another person about in your life, including your spouse or your friends. And here's how I know that it's an issue. And here's how I know it's tied to spiritual warfare. And here's why I know we've got to deal with this idea of forgiveness being settled. Because over and over again, this is what you do. You ask again and again for Jesus to forgive you of that. It's 10 years later, it's 20 years later, it's 30 years later, and over and over again in the dark times, that thing comes up, and your response to that thing is you ask Jesus again to forgive you. But here's the truth, you don't really believe he's forgiven you. You can say you do, but you really don't believe it. And here's how I know the truth. Here's what, here's what betrays what you say and what I say. The fact that we keep asking for forgiveness reveals that we don't believe it was ever forgiven. Church, listen to me today. The most important result of salvation that you need to stand upon, especially in the midst of a battle, is this. In Christ, you are forgiven. Totally and completely. It's not partial. It's not all but that one thing. Totally and completely. And here's how you need to understand it and apply it in spiritual battles. 
When the devil lies to you and says you're not, he brings up that one thing or that ten things or that five-year period of time, whatever it might be. That you put your smile on at church, but when it, in the dark times, that's what comes up. That's what you think about at night. And you ask again, God, forgive me. And you've asked him to forgive you a thousand times for it. That when the devil lies to you and says you're not forgiven, you need to do something. You need to declare the truth that you're forgiven and stop asking for forgiveness. You go, I can't believe you're telling me that, Pastor. I'm telling you. Stop asking for forgiveness. If you've asked to be forgiven of it, the Lord has forgiven you. And if I keep asking for forgiveness, it's saying, I don't believe he forgave me. That's how the devil wants to get you. He wants to have you in a spot where you keep saying, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And so God, please forgive me. If you've confessed it and you've asked him to forgive you, you've been genuine and you're a believer and you've said, God, please forgive me, he's forgiven you of it. If you keep asking, it means you don't believe it. You know what you need to do? You need to declare the truth. Declare Romans 8, 1 to the devil. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no con- you're feeling condemnation. That's what that is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because you're forgiven. That's why he says it. There's no condemnation because you're forgiven. That's how come there can be no condemnation. That condemning voice that comes that, that comes to us is from the devil. But freedom and forgiveness come from Jesus by the Spirit. Now, make my point that this is true. Think about something for a moment with me. Have you ever wondered why God included the stories of the people in the Bible that he did? Why? Oh, there's been, there's, you know, so pre-Jesus there was, you know, 5,000 years of Judaism and then post-Jesus, 2,000 years of Christianity. And the Bible is written in the first maybe 70 or 80 years, most of it, that, we, that, is, that is the Gospels and the, and the Epistles. Why did God include in that, in that, we call it the canon of Scripture, the people that he included? There's a whole bunch of other ones. You know, what if instead of, you're, you're not the Apostle Paul, but you're, you know, you're Philip. And you get like this much time, and Philip gives his whole life. You know? Why did he include the people, as, especially the stars of Scripture, most of them, why are they included? People like Moses and David and Paul. Why did he include, you ever ask yourself that question? Why did he select these people to put in there? I think there's a very good reason why. One reason is because they committed some of the worst sins imaginable that humanity can commit. Each of the men, David, Moses, and Paul, were murderers. They they didn't just do a little bad stuff. They were murderers. They contributed directly to murder or directly murdered people. You know, Mary Magdalene's a prostitute. Why does he include these people? Because harlots. Why Why does he do this stuff? Say, oh, this person, this person's in the lineage of Christ. She's a you know, a, 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 a prostitute. What different people? Why would he include David and Moses and Paul and all those other people? God includes their stories. Complete with their sins to make a point. They were completely forgiven and totally loved by God. This is what God's saying. I don't know how many, maybe some of you, you sat in my office and you struggled with forgiveness. And I said to you, why do you think God put Paul in the New Testament? 
I don't know. I said, because he's a murderer. And if God can forgive a murderer, he can forgive you. That's why he did it. If God could forgive Paul the murderer and David the murderer and Moses the murderer, do you think he really can't forgive you? You are, he included them because he's trying to say they're completely forgiven and totally loved by God. Who wrote, there is now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Who wrote that? The Apostle Paul. What's Paul? A murderer. The murderer writes, there's no condemnation. If the little goody two-sus that never did anything wrong in their life other than tear a mattress tag off that says do not remove under penalty of law, if they say there's no condemnation, you go, well, of course there's no condemnation. You didn't do anything to be forgiven of. Well, they really did because it's a matter of the heart. But you say, well, what big deal? But when the murderer is forgiven and he says, listen, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can believe it. Completely forgiven and totally loved by God. So when a devil lies to you in spiritual warfare and he says that you are not forgiven, that one thing is too big, it keeps coming back, you keep asking for forgiveness, remind him that you are. Stand upon the results of your salvation. So Paul's saying, it's like a shield, you've got to pick it up. The devil's lying, lying, lying. Now here's one thing I hadn't thought of until this minute. You put on a helmet, you can't hear so well. Right? <laughs> Put on the helmet of salvation. You can't hear his lies. Put it on. And stand in the fact that in Christ you are totally forgiven and completely loved. That's spiritual warfare. That's the kind of stuff Paul's talking about here when he says, Put on the helmet of salvation. Now let's move on to another thing that we know for sure that we can stand upon um, because we are saved. And it's super important in spiritual warfare. And it's this. You need to understand the second thing. We are valuable. You're forgiven. You're valuable. These are results of salvation, things that are true that we can stand upon. How do we treat something of great value? Something's very, very valuable. Do you treat it um, with care or neglect? With care. Treat it with care. You know, um, one of the great reasons... The devil can get people to treat themselves badly or to treat other people badly, which is his goal. Remember, he's trying to create, instead of unity, the whole book of Ephesians, he's trying to cause disunity. How does that happen? By people treating people, other people badly or treating themselves badly. So one of the great reasons the devil can get people to treat themselves badly or treat other people badly is because they don't value people or humanity. They don't value people. Why does a person abuse themselves through neglect or addiction? If you bore down into their lives, often because of hurt, they don't believe they're valuable. They don't believe they have any value. Why do people mistreat other people? The real reason is you drill down. They don't believe the other people are valuable. Think about the riots that just went on in Charlottesville, Virginia. Think about this in the riots. Why would two groups of people that I think it's safe to say, if not 100%, almost 100% of the people did not personally know any of the other people in the other group? It wasn't like, you know, Brett and Josh fighting, you know, which they did as kids they don't do anymore as adults. 
Um, they, it's not like they came together and said, I'm on one side and I'm on the other. I really know you. I'm going to fight against you because I'm mad at you. These are strangers. Total strangers. One group picketing, the other group picketing, it turns into a riot. Why could that happen? You know what the door bore down, what the real reason is? Each individual group placed no value on the others because their political positions were different. They said, you're less valuable than me, so I'll drive my car in and kill you. You're less valuable than me, so I'll hit you and I'll punch you when you're, when you're protesting what you want to do or standing for what you think is your right. The reason those things happen, how could two strangers fight, is because they see no real value in the other person. You see, if you value something, you take care of it and protect it. If you devalue something, you feel free to mistreat it. Now here's the truth that we need to get come to grips with today. Every human on this planet, every, say every with me, every, every, not every except for a terrorist. I didn't say that, did I? Every human on this planet is of immense value. You know how we know? The way we determine value is by what someone is willing to pay for something. So think about a Picasso or a Monet. Pictures painted by, by famous artists. I look at some of the things that I'm like, that's the ugliest painting I've ever seen in my life. Like, my Springer Spaniel could paint a better picture than that. You know? You might not like it. You might think it's hideous. But someone is willing to pay millions of dollars for it. Therefore, its value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. You might think it's ugly. You might think it doesn't have value, but it has great value in all reality. You're the one that's wrong. It has great, it might be ugly, but it has great value because the value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. That determines the value. Well, listen to me, church. The highest price ever paid for anything in all of history is the price God himself paid to redeem mankind by the sacrifice of his very only son, Jesus. If you want to say, that people have no value, any group, you're going against what the Scripture says. Scripture says the, that the highest price ever paid for anything in all of, all of all, whatever all is, is the value of a human life because Jesus died for the human lives. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. You want a verse you should have written on your wall in your house. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty ways of your life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish, goes on to say. The thing that determines the value of a human is what was paid for a human. And Peter tells us what was paid for a human is the very life of God himself, which says it is the most valuable thing ever there ever could be. Every human's value is determined by what has been paid to purchase them. So people are priceless. So here's a spiritual warfare application. So when the devil tries to tell you that you are worthless, or someone else is worthless, you are worthless, so there's division within yourself. Someone else is worthless, so you can mistreat them, or overlook them, 
or misuse them or ignore them. Oh, there's one. I wouldn't mistreat them, but I'll ignore them. When the devil tries to tell you you are worthless or somebody else is worthless, stand on what you know from your salvation. Because he died to purchase us. That people are priceless. That you are priceless. That even that neighbor who plays their music way too loud, way too late, and their dog never shuts up, they're priceless. Doesn't mean you can't come to some resolution on how to handle situations. But they're priceless. And when the devil, what he's going to try to do is to cause disunity, he has to convince you that someone else, starting with yourself, is not priceless or valuable. If you understand that you are priceless and valuable, but the person next to you is priceless and valuable, then a lot of the division the devil tries to create won't happen because you say, well, I could never act that way because he's priced, that person's priceless. My spouse, my child, my neighbor, my coworker, my boss, they're priceless because Jesus determined their value when he died for them. So let's quickly move on to the last one. Now, just so you know, the last one was going to be an entire sermon. I was going to write the whole sermon just on this last one, but I couldn't get by what, salva- what it doesn't mean by salvation. and Forgiveness had to be included and, and, and um, value had to be included. So the whole sermon was going to be this, but this is what I'm spending the least time on, which is kind of funny um, because I knew we'd be out of time. The last result of salvation that we can go to when we are under attack by the enemy is know this, in Christ we are hopeful. We are hopeful in Christ. What do I mean by that? It's not like I'm hoping the Packers win. I hope they do. That's not what I'm talking about here. This is what I mean. This, this day, this year, this week, this life, this decade, is not the end of the story. No matter how difficult life may get right now, this is not the end of the story. But here's the good thing as believers. Remember, it's this helmet of salvation. What do we know because we're saved? You know what we know because we're saved? We know the end of the story. You know what we know? God wins. And everybody in Christ wins with Him. God wins. Can you imagine if every football game you watch, you always knew the Packers were going to win? You'd probably stop watching. It wouldn't pay anymore. Guess what? You'd, just be, or you'd, <laughs> you'd make really big bets. I'm not sure what you would do. You'd do something. But here's the deal. We know the end of the story. It's not up for grabs. There can't be a Hail Mary pass at the end by the devil that beats, the, you know, that, that, beats the, that, that beats God. Russell Wilson can't do that. You know? Here's what I know. God wins, and because He wins, we win. Jesus gave us a promise. He promised, He said, I'm coming back again to take you to be with me for all of eternity. That we will live in a new earth and a new heaven, a place of glory and love and freedom. And friends, I don't believe it's sitting on a cloud playing a harp. I believe everything that earth is, it's going to just be intensified a million times better than this. Because it's a new heaven and a new earth. A better heaven and a better earth. It's going to be somehow infinitely better than this. He's been working on it for 2,000 years. It's going to be incredible. A place of glory and love and forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples when they were discouraged. And interesting, turn your Bibles to John 14, because it's really interesting to note this. Tell, me, tell me when you're there. 
John 14. There? So you know how your Bible, now, you know how there's little like a bold headings above the different sections of your Bible? Now, those weren't in the original text. You know that, right? Neither were chapter and verses, right? You know that? What does yours say, John 14, right above chapter 1? Jesus comforts his disciples. What? The way to the Father. I'm going to forget you said when I ask you. <laughs> Jesus comforts the disciples and things like that. Right? Mine says exactly this. Jesus, and New American Standard. Jesus comforts his disciples. You're reading the nearly inspired translation, right? <laughs> Never mind. It's a private between me and Suzanne. Look at verse 1 through 3. Jesus is doing what? He's comforting them when they are discouraged. He's, the, the, he's telling them he's going to heaven, he's going to go away, he's not going to be with them anymore. And they're discouraged. Sounds like spiritual warfare to me. The enemy's saying he's abandoning you. The enemy's whispering in your ear, oh, it's never going to work. Enemy's saying this whole thing has been for naught. It's not going to work. And Jesus says, what's he do? He comforts his disciples. How does he comfort them? Hopeful. Verse 14. Verse 1. Chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Write your name in there sometime. Or write the word me. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus makes a promise. He says, this is not the end. He said, I'm going away. They're discouraged. It's spiritual warfare time. He says, how am I going to encourage you? Helmet of salvation. What does your salvation promise you? Your salvation says, guess what? I can be hopeful because I know the end. That I don't have to be troubled. I live in troubled times, but it's all right. This is not the end, no matter how bad it gets. This is not the end. Jesus is going to get me, come and get me and take me to where he is. The Christian future is certain. Life eternal with Jesus is assured. When life is hard, what do we do? We stand upon this promise of salvation. Our hope in a marvelous future. So when life is raging... And the world seems out of control and you've had one of those moments like I had when I was writing this and I was looking at the world around me and I'm going, it's insane, God. It's got to be worse than it's ever been. And I know that for every generation before me, people have sat down and said, it's insane, God. It's got to be worse than it's ever been. I understand this. Put on my helmet of salvation. You put on your helmet of salvation. Remember that being in Christ really means that you are forgiven that you are valuable, and that you can be hopeful. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your glorious gift of salvation that you give to us. It's all by grace. You call us by name. You give us the very ability to respond to you. Thank you for a glorious salvation, that because of that salvation we can, we can put on a helmet in the midst of whatever, whatever chaos our world is putting at us at this time. That, Lord, 
The truth is, we are forgiven, we are valuable, and we are hopeful. Now, Lord, I would ask this. For every person in this place, as whether it be today or tomorrow or next week or next year, that when we would be in a situation where the devil is raging, where the situation is raging and the devil is lying, he's telling us there's no hope. He's telling us that you've abandoned us. That, Lord, you would remind us of these results of our salvation, truths of our salvation. That, Lord, we would stand strong in you. That's what you said the goal is. That we would stand firm. The enemy would attack, but we'd stand firm. And doing everything we could to stand firm, stand firm there. That we wouldn't be knocked off our moorings. We'd be strong and stable people. Now, God, we'd be strong and stable individuals. We'd be strong and stable parents. We'd be strong and stable co-workers. So that, Lord, when the world rages around us and everybody else is in chaos, people could look to your church and say, you're not in chaos. And you could, we could say with confidence, not lying, not deceiving ourselves with confidence, that we have a peace that surpasses all understanding because of you. So Lord, we know the devil's going to rage. He's never going to stop. We would ask that you'd cause us to build our lives on these truths so that we would just be stable in the midst of the chaos. And therefore we would shine like beacons in the darkness because we would be different. And let that difference be an attraction to bring other people toward you so Lord I pray now for every person in this room that Lord if there may be a specific thing that they're dealing with that they would not leave today until they put the helmet of salvation on and they stand on one of these truths that yes they are forgiven they don't need to ask for forgiveness again that yes they are valuable even though if they're, the world around them says they're not they are, you proved it and yes they can be hopeful because you've promised them their future Lord, help us to overcome the lies of the enemies through the truth of our Father. We trust you for that, Jesus.